DW Living Planet with Sam Baker. Biodiversity. It's one of those environmental words that can encompass so much that it almost loses its meaning. Kind of like sustainability. But biodiversity is the rich variety of species that inhabit this planet. It's the plants and animals that live symbiotically in the ecosystems that surround us. Think of all the foods you eat and the pollinators that were needed to grow that food. Think of the oxygen you breathe coming from trees that also sequester the carbon we produce too much of right now. Think of the many medicines that have helped you or those you care about throughout your life. And think of the wonder of a small child chasing a butterfly or seeing fireflies light up the night sky. This is biodiversity. But due to some of our species' more destructive endeavors, about one million species of plants and animals are believed to be at risk of extinction. The world is witnessing levels of extinction not seen since the dinosaurs. The loss of biodiversity has reached unprecedented level in the history of humankind. 75% of the land globally is degraded. 66% of the marine environment is degraded. 85% of wetlands degraded or disappeared. 50% of coral reefs have disappeared. And all this degradation, pollution, here not even mentioning how we choke the ocean with plastics, is all as the result of human actions on biodiversity, on nature. And that's what needs to change. And yet, reports are also telling us that our global economy, 50% of the global GDP is dependent on nature. So on one side, we are killing that biodiversity. On the other side, our life, our economy, our health is dependent on it. And this is what all of us human beings need to understand. It's not anybody else, it's our actions on biodiversity. That was Elizabeth Mrema, the Executive Secretary of the Convention on Biological Diversity. Right now, world leaders are meeting in Montreal, Canada, to discuss how we can best protect all these species and ecosystems, as we do actually have the power to avoid extinctions of currently at-risk species. Now, some of nature's best protectors are indigenous groups around the world. While only 6% of the global population is made up of indigenous peoples, their lands are home to 80% of the species found on Earth right now. During this biodiversity conference, indigenous groups are demanding a more influential seat at the table. My next guest has been advocating for environmental protections and indigenous rights for as long as she can remember. My name is Takaya Blaney. I'm from the Salaman Nation, and I do land defense work to protect our territories from industrial encroachment. I'm also learning my language from my grandparents. Now 21 years old, Takaya's given major speeches and sung at international climate conferences. This year, Takaya's a delegate at the UN Biodiversity Conference, sometimes referred to as COP15. 
I spoke with her this week about that experience and her takeaways from the process. I feel like Indigenous knowledge is a hot commodity inside the United Nations. Constantly, I hear, you know, Indigenous-led solutions. I feel like we are being looked to for answers. But what we go into those spaces to say is to stop attacking us. And that the land is a part of us and we are a part of the land. And although that is a responsibility that is only really remembered by the Indigenous people in this world, that is still a responsibility that everyone shares for their future generations. How are Indigenous communities included in the conference? And maybe how do you see that needing to change? As an Indigenous person inside that space, you know, constantly people are taking pictures of you. Constantly people are, you know, trying to get photos of how you look and your regalia. And it just makes you wonder if, are we both here for the same purpose? Because I came here to fight for the future of life on my land, to fight for the right of countless future generations beyond me to exist. It is very clear that who we are is is not valued for what we can offer or what we can teach, but rather what power we can lend. We enter those spaces and we are still mined and extracted from And I have not seen this change as a young person in the decade of work that I've done in these international spaces. It's incredibly tiring to experience that while also knowing that we have to be there because it's it's our lands that they're talking about. In your role as a delegate, what does that mean? Like, what does that look like on a day-to-day basis? For COP15, I brought a delegation of Indigenous youth from the West Coast of so-called Canada. From upriver and saltwater communities, we're connected culturally to the salmon. That is a relationship that all of our ancestors maintained. And that still guides us in the work that we do as salmon people. I brought two of my cousins from my nation of Tla'aman, as well as our sister nation of Humalco. So I feel like my role has really been guiding our young people in this space, ensuring that our our voice as, as young people of our communities is heard to the greatest impact possible. There is a dam in our territories, a pulp mill and hydroelectric dam, that was responsible for displacing our people from our ancestral village site four generations ago and in the process destroying the second largest salmon-bearing river on the West Coast. So for myself and my cousins specifically, the work that we came here to do was to speak about our village site, about our river on an international stage, and to push for dam removal and river restoration to try and have conversations with relevant ministers within this country, federally and provincially, about dam removal, about river restoration, and to connect with other Indigenous nations that have 
fought similar projects in their territories and won. There's recently been a push to protect 30% of the planet's land and marine ecosystems by 2030. Now, historically, conservation efforts have often pushed indigenous peoples off of their lands. What do you think of this proposal? And is it something that should be looked at as a goal for this conference? Or is there a different way to go about this? Well, speaking as an Indigenous person within this country, it is not Canada's jurisdiction to determine whether or not my land should be conserved or sacrificed. And if Indigenous people are showing up within these international spaces and demanding that you stop attacking us and you stop invading us, and what we're met with is, well, how are you going to feed the rest of the world? How are you going to power the rest of the world? I think that you're misunderstanding that this is not your land. What is being stolen from our territories is being used to make a very small percent of the population on this planet rich. You cannot pick and choose from indigenous lands that are not yours, that you've never walked upon, that you can't pronounce, and determine whether or not they should be saved or sacrificed. What would your ideal changes or outcomes B, when it comes to biodiversity? When I brought young people from my community into this space, I had to explain what biodiversity was, not because they didn't understand, but because we fundamentally operate in different worldviews when it comes to land and life. We have always protected biodiversity on our territories And we can only really model that for our land. You know, I can't go into another person's territory and tell them how to protect biodiversity. But the real process that that you're asking about for, you know, how we come together and how we protect biodiversity... Those systems already exist, and they're very deeply rooted, and they've existed for thousands of years. That was Takaya Blaney speaking to me from the International Biodiversity Conference in Montreal. To get the latest updates on that conference, which continues through Monday, as well as other top environment stories, do check out dw.com environment. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for DW Global Ideas and Environment. This is Living Planet. I'm Sam Baker. Fish rot. That's the name of the largest corruption scandal in the history of Namibia. At the end of 2019, it emerged that fishing rights were being illegally given to Icelandic companies and large bribes were being paid. Ten suspects have been arrested since, two ministers among them. But other politically well-connected people are still at large, as anti-corruption activists point out. This next story looks at how the scandal has affected Namibia, and in particular, its fishermen. Samuel Johannes casts his fishing rod. 
The bobber lands far past the surge in the cold Atlantic water. Now he has to wait until a local Namibian fish bites. When I was young, I used to catch beautiful fish, many of them. I used to be stronger back then, too. Those were better times. Now I am getting old and my earnings as a fisherman aren't sufficient to make a living anymore. The costs for hooks and other supplies have increased and there are fewer fish in the sea than before. Johannes and the other fishermen have been awake since 4 a.m. They left the coastal town of Henty's Bay before sunrise and drove north. They are all subsistence fishermen, so they live from their catch. According to estimations, roughly 11% of the population depends on fishing here. Part of their catch feeds their families, the rest is sold. But today they didn't catch much, again, says Johannes. He can only speculate about the reasons. We had a lot of rain this year, maybe that played a role. The weather has changed a lot here. The temperatures have risen and the water is warmer too. That's because of climate change. And we fishermen are the first to feel the impact of that. Fishing fleets are rolling in around 100 kilometres south of Wolfish Bay. This is where the large companies have their headquarters. The harbour city is the main seat of the fishing industry. It's one of Namibia's most important economic sectors, and fish is an important export. The Namibian government makes decisions on fishing rights and catch quotas. There are regulations for international companies that include involving and employing Namibians. But they are not always adhered to. Right before the 2019 elections, the so-called fish rot scandal sparked nationwide protests in response to large-scale corruption and tax evasion. A whistleblower who worked at the Iceland-based multinational fishing company, Samhari, provided WikiLeaks with over 30,000 documents that came to be known as the fish rot files. The documents detailed how the company paid off high-ranking politicians and officials in Namibia with the aim of acquiring the country's highly lucrative fishing quotas. By creating a sophisticated system of several subsidiaries, Samhari was effectively able to circumvent legal write-off procedures and secure broad fishing rights in Namibia, profiting from the fishing grounds and off the back of Namibia's treasury. This went on for seven years. All in all, Samhari paid $10 million worth of bribes to a corrupt clique of ministers, the head of the state fishing company and their entourage. The legal fallout is still ongoing. Nine out of ten suspects, the so-called Fishrot 10, are behind bars in the capital Windhoek, with only one being granted bail. The court case is still pending, with the whistleblower, Johannes Stephenson, expressing his wish to return to Namibia to testify, despite concerns for his safety. Graham Hopwood is following the proceedings with interest. He is the director of the Institute for Public Policy Research, a Namibian think tank. To him, Fishrot marks a turning point in Namibia's history. We always knew there was corruption and uh, there was, you know, probably corruption at the highest levels, but we didn't have a lot of evidence. The reason why Fishrot 
came out and had such an impact in Namibia was because of a whistleblower from the Icelandic company that was involved. He collected a massive evidence, uh, a documentary evidence, uh, which he then put on WikiLeaks. And of course, uh, there was international involvement through Al Jazeera as well. So the uh, information that came out was so clear about corruption that the government and, and the authorities here couldn't not act. You know, they had to act. So in, as a consequence, we now have 10 people behind bars awaiting trial, including two former ministers. So in that sense, uh, it was uh, yeah, a shock to the system. And I think that's when we as a think tank uh, decided we should start to do a lot more on corruption and not just put out uh, policy briefing papers that, you know, say we might need to change the law in this respect or that respect, but to be more active as a civil society organisation in, in tackling corruption. As a consequence of the scandal, Hapur and his team started the project Integrity in Namibia. The goal is to create a broad alliance against corruption. It's also supposed to catch bigger fish, not just in the future, but also retrospectively. Hopwood calls the fish rot players untouchables. We feel, I mean, there's a lot of evidence that it's much more than this 10 people. Uh, there's other people who are very politically connected who should have been arrested um, for money laundering and corruption in relate, relation to fish rot. So, so we feel, you know, shouldn't just be allowed to get away with it. And unfortunately, we have an anti-corruption commission which, you know, um, I think is politically compromised. So it's not surprising that they feel a certain debt of loyalty to their appointing authority and uh, don't go down certain avenues. And, and then also, of course, they can plead lack of resources and things, which is what they've said around the fish rot case. Uh, we want to focus on the ones we believe we can get convictions rather than, you know, every, every Tom, Dick and Harry who, who, who was connected to fish rot. You know, but that unfortunately means that there's impression given that certain people can, can just do what they want and they will not be arrested and they will not be even be investigated. This corruption scandal is also always a topic of discussion with the small fishermen of Henty's Bay. Linia Mwahafa is the only woman in the group. Every now and then she hears about new fish rot revelations, she says. The sums involved are beyond her imagination. I hope that justice will be done. I too would like to know where all those millions went. The scandal was a wake-up call for all of us. Since then, we hear more regularly about other problems with the government. There continues to be politicians who dole out money for themselves and their families. At the same time, the government claims to us it has no money. Wahafa pulls the meat out of a mussel, spears it on a hook and casts her fishing rod again. She, too, has caught little today. She takes one fish home for dinner and sells the others. In a good week, she earns 500 Namibian dollars, the equivalent of about 32 euros. The fish provides income and food security at the same time. If I don't catch anything, then I don't have anything to get my family through. We need more support from the government. We survive only on fishing, but others catch much more from their boats and make profits. Hopefully this won't lead to a situation where there are no fish left, because then it's us who suffer. Fishing mirrors society here. Namibia is a country with particularly pronounced social inequality. German colonial rule was followed by the grip of the South African administration and apartheid. 
Today, more than three decades on from political independence, poverty and unemployment remain widespread. In the small coastal villages, fishing is one of the only real ways to make a living. Henty's Bay is located in the middle of a desert landscape on the coast. Most families live here in small rectangular houses surrounded by the sand of the desert and the dunes, which merge seamlessly. There's not a single tree in sight, not even a blade of grass. Agriculture, or even cultivation for personal use, is out of the question. Jobs are only available in a few stores, the clinic or the nearby university campus. On the outskirts of the village, a building painted in bright shades of red and blue stands out against the barren landscape. It is the headquarters of the Hanganeni Artisanal Fishing Association, or Hafa for short. Small-scale fishermen founded this association about 20 years ago, supported by donations and the Ministry of Fisheries. The goal, says Hafa director Hermann Hornerb, was to create a formal structure and income opportunities for the historically marginalised small-scale fishermen. For too long, Namibians were simply followers when it comes to blue economy. In other words, when people, foreign people, exploit the resources, the fishery and marine resources, we are just by standing by and watching, or otherwise we are being used. And with the new regime, there was another category of elites that was created that created wealth for themselves. Horneb only alludes to the fish rot scandal. He does not want to say any more until the court case has been concluded. Structurally, little has changed in the fishing industry since then. On paper, fish as a maritime resource should benefit the country and its development, and Namibians should play a greater role in the industry. That is also his vision, says Horneb. The people along the coastal towns were simply watching how the big boats how the wealth is overly enriching the individuals. Yet hundreds of people in a small town like Hendisbury would be suffering, not employed, not able to utilize the fishery and marine resources for even trading. Then this is where the new regime started using this as a vehicle for self-empowerment. We are really trying to give people a chance or an opportunity to, to become someone that can effectively and sustainably utilize the fishery and marine resources. But that's the ultimate goal. For example, the association finances the maintenance of the vehicle, which the group of small-scale fishermen used to leave early in the morning. Two boats were also purchased. In addition, Hafer operates a small factory where the fish are gutted and shrink-wrapped in plastic, as well as a store and a snack bar. The association receives donations from one of Namibia's largest fishing companies. The Ministry of Fisheries and Marine Resources also supports it financially and with fishing quotas. With all this in mind, Honop weighs his words carefully. In the past, he held office as the mayor of Henty's Bay for the ruling party, Swapo. But since then, he has switched to people's politics, he says. The way our independent government handled the fishery and marine resources, looking at prior independence, we did very good in terms of restocking, 
I think somewhere, somehow, we lost that momentum. And I think with the emerging multi-democracy in our country, or multi-party democracy in our country that is inevitable, policies that are now coming into play, like the blue economy policy, public becoming aware and, 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 and starting to participate in these issues, I am quite hopeful that things would improve. Our governance should just pull up the socks. Pressure on the ruling party Swapo, which has ruled with an absolute majority since Namibia's independence in 1990, has increased as a result of the fish rot scandal from both internal and external sources. Namibia's current economic woes, which increased as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, only add to this pressure. On top of this, the fight against corruption is still very much ongoing, says Graeme Hopwood of the Institute for Public Policy Research. Namibia is actually, you know, you know, not in the bottom of the corrupt league table for you know Africa. We're quite near the top, usually in the top ten. So it's not like the corruption has completely swamped society. We still have a lot of issues which we feel, um, you know, if we don't tackle them now and if we don't address and reverse this trend of worsening corruption, we will end up, you know, in the same league as the Nigerias or the Kenyas where corruption is endemic. We want to stop Namibia falling into those traps and actually pushes and makers into a more of a role model for, for governance. And uh, despite fish rot and other things, we still feel that we could put ourselves out there as a beacon in terms of good governance. So um, if we can make the changes to the policies and the laws, but the fundamental issue here is, you know, you can make all the amendments to the laws you want, but if you don't have the political will to enforce them, we won't be able to do that. So, you know, um, the politicians have an absolutely crucial role to play. And uh, I think there are some people in the ruling party who have a lot of integrity who still believe in that vision, but there are others um, who are quite willing to compromise Namibia for the sake of their own pockets, basically. Back on the coast, it is now late afternoon, but the small-scale fishermen are still at work. Samuel Johannes opens his cooler and points to the day's meagre haul. The worse the catch, the longer the day, the old man says dryly. If you don't catch fish, you don't earn anything. I think it would be better if Hafa, with the help of the government, paid us some kind of basic salary. Then we would at least know for sure that we can pay expenses like electricity, water and rent then my grandson could also continue the tradition. I am already teaching him how to fish. I want him to understand the sea is our livelihood and I want him to be able to live off it himself one day. A few meters away on the beach, fisher Linia Mohafa has other plans for her children's future. She has a second job as a cleaner to give them a good education. She's skeptical about the future of fishing. When I started, we were already on our way back at 11 o'clock because we had caught enough fish. Now, it takes the whole day. That's why I don't think my children will ever do the same. Maybe there won't be any fish for them then. Namibia is no exception when it comes to global trends. 
Overfishing, pollution and climate change are all taking a toll here. At an international level, the southwestern African country is one of the states that has committed to protecting the world's oceans. At the national level, an action plan is underway to strengthen both the rights and food security of small-scale fishermen and women. After the fish rod scandal, this initiative may be a crucial opportunity for the government to improve its image, restore trust and, perhaps, help out the little fish. In a Camules with that report by Leonie Mach. Before we end the show today, I've got a question for you, our listeners. Did you have a favorite Living Planet story this year? If so, we would like to hear what it was for our end-of-year program. You can write to us or send us a voice memo at livingplanet at dw.com. Let us know which story captured your attention this year or maybe made you think a little differently about an environmental issue. Thanks this week to Robin Funke and Vipka Teichtmaya in the studio. I'm Sam Baker, and we'll be back next week with more environment stories from around the globe. Thank you.